Welcome to Cosmophonia. I'm Meredith. And I'm Gabe. And today we are talking about Alan Hovhaness's 53rd Symphony. Stardawn. It goes places and so do we. talking about somebody that no one ever talks about but they totally should because he's very interesting his name is alan hovannis he was a 20th century composer and he wrote a ton of stuff and a lot of it is space themed so he seemed like a good candidate for cosmophonia mm, it's true and by like ton of stuff like that's a general truth like hundreds of works hundreds mm-hmm. which for a composer in the 20th century is very uncommon yeah i think it, his opus numbers are like in the 600s and that doesn't even include everything he wrote because he had two like large purges in his <laughs> life for a couple of different reasons um so some of the pieces didn't make the cut but this one did this one did and this one is called St- Stardawn. Yeah. So yeah, it's one of several space theme pieces that he wrote. This particular space theme piece is a piece actually for band, mm-hmm. uh, like concert band, yep. which is also pretty exciting because we get to talk about this composer that people don't talk about. We also get to talk about band music, which is not something people talk about as much. And Stardawn is officially a symphony. Stardawn is the subtitle of it. It's his 53rd symphony, opus 377. <laughs> <laughs> so good job, Hovannis. Mm-hmm. And just a basic fact about it. So it's a symphony, but it's in only two movements, and they're both very short. The second one is actually half the length of the first. Uh, the recording that I have, it's five minutes long compared to the first movement being about nine minutes long. So it's a funny thing. It's a short (laughs) symphony for band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I read a quote from him saying that the reason that he wrote a lot of band music instead of pieces for orchestra is that, (laughs) I don't know how true this is, but he said that there are a lack of violinists or string players in the U.S., Maybe that was true at the time, but he was like, people just want band music, and so if they commissioned me, I'm going to write a band piece, and yeah, I'll call it a symphony, because I think it's great, and like, there's no reason it shouldn't be called that. Um, so, but I, I think that despite the fact that he did get a lot of band requests, which indicates that I guess there was a a decent like want for symphonic band music in the like mid late 20th century like that stuff doesn't get looked at by scholars it's really quite bizarre like there's no reason that a symphonic band work is any less interesting than a piece for orchestra like it might even have more instruments than your typical symphony usually has so for that reason and also for the reason that he was a 20th century composer who wrote mostly tonal music these are like two strikes against him in the academic community i think 
band music and tonal band music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because Hovannis, people don't talk about him very much. They do talk about him. Mm-hmm. Like, he is definitely more well-known than a lot of so-called band composers. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of his music, in addition to dealing with astronomical topics, also deals with his Armenian heritage. Mm-hmm. So it's like tonal, but it's also this kind of cross-cultural exercise between sort of traditional European harmony and Armenian tunes, or at least Armenian melodic aesthetics. I don't know. There's, there's That's probably a topic for a totally different podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does come up in circles largely because of that. But yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I I don't know about the shortage of violins. There seem to be plenty of violins. But I do think there is always a demand for, like, so-called serious band music, right? You know, this piece was written in 1983, mm-hmm. and it is a total guess. I have no numbers to back this up. But my guess is that in 1983, and probably still today, more school districts probably had bands than orchestras. It may even be true that today more colleges, or at least as many colleges, have bands as orchestras. So, you know, the band as an American institution is almost certainly a more resilient and concept than the orchestra. Sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, demand for band music, for sure. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's funny because uh, I don't really know the story here, but I guess the piece was commissioned by an institution, but it didn't get premiered until a number of years later by a completely different group. Yeah. So I don't know if they didn't like it or if they just like something happened and they couldn't play it or what. That could be a function of a lot of things. Yeah. I mean... We've, uh, those of us who compose are accustomed to <laughs> the occasional seven-year gap, <laughs> which I, th- I think is what it was. The p- he wrote the piece in 83, and it was premiered in 1990, but yeah, mm-hmm. but by a totally different institution. Mm-hmm. He obviously liked the work well enough to not burn it, which yeah. is not a joke, because that is the thing he did. Yep. But it did uh, supposedly have a third movement um, that is no longer in existence, at least in as far as we know, in connection with the piece. But these two movements, they do still make a lot of sense, at least in terms of what he kind of set out to depict with this piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so the title, Star Dawn, is a little bit vague. I mean, it's certainly poetic. It's a nice image. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that that is just the beginning. There are <laughs> at least two important narratives mm-hmm. behind Stardon. The new one, the one of Hovannis's invention, is the idea that this piece literally tells a story about people leaving Earth for Mars specifically mm-hmm. with the intention of colonizing it. So the first movement is the journey from Earth to Mars, which is actually very current yeah, for it today. Really, I have many thoughts about this. Yeah. And then the second movement is, congratulations, you've landed on Mars and mm-hmm. everything is, we have this amazing, bright, cosmic future on Mars. Yep. That's the 
four that's the four minute second movement <laughs> um but then this is also in relation with an old story yes and that is the paradiso from dante's divine comedy and i find this very interesting because dante's divine comedy i don't know if people know this unless they read it it's literally a space travel fantasy <laughs> you know <laughs> how <laughs> How often does it get described as a space travel fantasy? But it is. It's it's about a guy imagining himself traveling through the different spheres of space. And of course, you have to remember that Dante's writing in the what do you call it? The Ptolemaic cosmos, Ptolemaic model. Yeah, he's pre-Copernican. Yeah. So this is before Copernicus. This is before Kepler, Galileo, all that. So according to Dante, according to everyone's best guess at the time, you know, you have these concentric spheres that are surrounding Earth, and each of them encompasses a particular planet. Um, so you got first the Moon, and then Mercury, Venus, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And then beyond that, you have the sphere of the fixed stars, which are all the constellations, all the actual stars. Beyond that, you have the prima mobile or something like that which is the great crank of the universe <laughs> i think dante would be mad at me if i called it that but that's so unglamorous no it, it no it really is not how he describes it at all it's just the, i can't help but think about it because it's like the way by which god moves the rest of the universe as he interacts with the prima mobile and then everything else kind it of falls into place. It makes it sound like one of those Monty Python animations. <laughs> like Dante's going up and there's this like <laughs> cut out illustrated guy going, Ooh, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> that is really not in the spirit of, of, no. <laughs> of Paradiso at all. It is in the spirit of Monty Python. It is. It is. <laughs> but not Havanas, not, not Dante. <laughs> no, these are, these are very ser- serious enough works and they really are trying to portray something that is really glorious like glorious but beyond description i believe and that's where i think hovanus really does borrow from dante is this kind of mystical spirit but essentially from the description that i guess hovanus gives himself this title starred on we looked it up in the dante and it doesn't seem like it appears there at all but it's referring to this moment where Dante is traveling through the different planetary spheres, which are the different spheres of heaven. He's on the sun, currently, (laughs) Um, with all the wise people. And then he's with Beatrice, his beloved, of course. And then they learn it's time to move on. And then it's hard for me to picture it because it's really, it's very poetic. But like, anyway, essentially... They're moving towards Mars and they see Mars like come up over the horizon or something like that. And it's like this new star and it's red and it's it's like very beautiful. So you could describe that as a star dawn, I suppose. Uh, and so that's where the title comes from. And it really, that part is actually about Mars, but it's very interesting to me how Hovannis took that and is like, let me think about that idea in the modern age in the modern age where people can actually go into space you know Dante doesn't have to just imagine it people can actually do it and like people have been thinking about life on Mars for a little while at this period I mean 
you have the late 19th century dis- discovery <laughs> that <laughs> there are canals on Mars, which turns out they're not, but they were interpreted that way. And then people were like, oh, well, did people on Mars make those? You know, and so there was all this speculation that maybe there could be life on Mars. And then I don't, I don't really know if there were any movements to try and colonize Mars. There must have been, but the ones that I know of were actually a little later. Like in the 90s, you had, what is it, Mars Direct or something. And they're like, we got to go colonize Mars. And then actually a few years ago, this happened too. There was some company. I remember this happening. It was like kind of a big deal. This company was like, all right, 2022, we're going to send 20 people to Mars you're never coming back. This is your life now. Who wants to sign up? And like a ton of people signed up, yeah. but of course this didn't happen. Well, and that was the like reality show version. Where <laughs> it was like, it was like sort of a science-y concept, but really it was more just like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, people have always talked about colonizing Mars in the same way that they've talked about colonizing the moon. Mm-hmm. None of that talk, I don't think, was particularly particularly serious for until really until today in in large part because everyone understands that first of all you need to get there once at least and that still hasn't happened Mm -hmm. and the idea of colonizing anything is like way beyond where the economic technological or political will is yeah um i think what might have been kind of talk of the town in this regard for him in the early 80s was the idea of terraforming. Yeah, yeah, You know, uh, which I think at that point was, well, and still is very much closer to the realm of science fiction than fact, but nevertheless a planetary conquest concept that that I I would bet that he was familiar with. Mm. I mean, despite the fact that he was not actually involved in the science of that, he really did believe that humans should colonize Mars. Oh, yeah. He's like, pretty clear about that one. Yeah, And he's not alone. I have this book, The Planet Girded Suns by Sylvia Engdahl. She's actually uh, best known as a novelist, like a sci-fi novelist. But she got very interested in this idea of life existing elsewhere in the universe. And so she wrote this book about the history of that idea. This was from the 70s, so probably things have changed a lot since then in regards to understanding historical perspectives on this. But she goes into detail about, like, from the 17th century until now, all the people that just took for granted that, yeah, there is other life out there. Um, It's funny because, actually, I should probably get to the point. (laughs) The point is that she ends the book with this plea to humanity saying... I really believe that we need to go out and colonize other planets. Like, this is very urgent for me. So I think there are a number of people around that time that were just, like, looking around and seeing, you know, ecological disaster. Um, Hovannis talks about this a lot. He's very into ecology and things like that. But he, he talks about this. He's like, all of our modern science, like, he doesn't diss science in general. He just says that, too many bad things have come from developing terrible weapons. Um, we've developed our society in a way that people are like soulless and they feel like they've lost hope. And the way things are going, it looks bad. And we're going to end up destroying the earth one way or another. So we better have a backup plan. And that backup plan is to colonize Mars. 
Yeah, I mean, the counter argument to that is always that it's just kind of defeatist. And people have actually looked at, like, the math of what it would cost to, say, colonize Mars as opposed to, say, fix Earth. And it's way more economical to fix Earth than it is to colonize Mars. And I also think it's worth it. I mean, you know, poor Earth. Like, come on, man. Like, let's do... (laughs) I'm not giving up on Earth. I love the idea of colonizing Mars, exploring space myself, but I'm not done with Earth. I don't want to just, like, leave poor little Earth. See, I don't think Hovannis was like that either. I think this is a very... Kind of a departure for him, because most of his pieces are really celebrating nature and trying to get people to... I, I really think he actually had this kind of messianic calling kind of like because he wanted his music to inspire people to you know become one with nature and like listen to nature and do better (laughs) you can only write 600 pieces if you have a messianic call it's (laughs) (laughs) or if you're mozart or schubert or telemann i don't know if or haydn or haydn i think he just had a lot of time on his hands well he was trapped up in them castles exactly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right so maybe you don't need a messianic calling but um in the 20th century maybe you maybe do you do yeah 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 you know and the other thing is that the aside from the kind of um i almost said practical but that's not the right word aside from the sort of like we need to save our species argument i do think that he's onto something when the idea of looking to space as a source for renewed wonder. Yeah. That seems both very of the time, uh, but also very powerful and helps us understand why this piece of music is effective at all, right? Because this is not a piece of music that hits you over the head with, Earth is dying, we need to go to Mars. This is a piece of music that is, like, materially beautiful to hear. It's just a really pretty piece. It has this kind of modern space exploration angle and the Dante thing, but those are very much in the background. They're not things that he does a whole lot to make you aware of through the sounds of the piece itself. And if the sounds of the piece itself do anything relating to any of this it is to invoke or convey that sense of wonder and magic that we associate with looking out into the space and thinking about moving through it Mm. whatever that might mean Mm -hmm. yeah and the reason that he fits in my work so well is that i'm looking at a number of composers in the 20th century who have kind of recognized this potential lack of inspiring and commonly held mythologies uh, about the world and about the universe and that tell people how they fit into the cosmos. And these composers have felt very compelled to try and recreate something that will renew people's as you said, sense of wonder and sense of connection to the cosmos. A lot of times this takes the form of composing pieces that are very modern sounding, very avant-garde. But on the other hand, sometimes this involves composers looking to materials from the past or even global materials like Hovannis does and 
trying to find some kind of poetic truth that will be able to speak to a modern audience and then reformatting it in light of, you know, modern scientific understandings of the universe, using that to show people, you know, wonder and awe and hope still exist. (laughs) And I think this is a great example of that because he actually does use a lot of kind of old-ish sounding materials. Um, So there's the Dante reference, of course, and we could get into more of some ideas from that, but but just musically speaking, he has a lot of references to like Renaissance and and Baroque era kind of musical features. First of all, he uses a lot of modes, and some of the modes are kind of like you know Eastern European or Middle Eastern kind of sounding modes with like the little augmented second or Armenian or Armenian. <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about Armenian music, but I assume that he did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he did obviously. Um, yeah, so there's that. So, like, trying to r- incorporate global musical features, but also reaching back in time. Um, there's a wonderful moment in the uh, in the first movement. Like, the second kind of section of the first movement is a fugue, right? So we get the woodwinds come in one by one, and slowly more of them are added until you have this lovely co- contrapuntal texture and that is very reminiscent of, you know, Renaissance and, and Baroque textures. It's very short. It's only like 45 seconds. But then after that, you get this wonderful, like, fully orchestrated chorale. So all of the instruments are playing at the same time. It's a homorhythmic and it's this chordal kind of texture. And then you have this melody that's very reminiscent of hymns. Like, some parts of it sound like like actual hymns from, like, the 17th century or, or earlier, like, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming, and there's another one that comes to mind. And But, but yeah, it sounds like it could have been a melody written in the 16th century, but with some, some nice little chromatic alterations and, and interesting chord progressions, really really beautiful i love that part but you know these kinds of chorales and fugues both of these are kind of meant to to invoke a sense of kind of religious and spiritual awe and connection 
especially the chorales, you know, and hymns. And so even in not the church context, they still kind of carry that kind of weight, I think. They do. And, you know, the choice of harmonies is not insignificant, as is the modal inflections. I mean, they might be drawn from other kinds of traditions, but they do fit still like kind of squarely within familiar tonal language. Oh, sure. Except for the fact that the chord progressions, he's pretty free in terms of how he constructs his chord progressions. He doesn't use any weird chords. They're all familiar chords, but they're in odd orders and odd combinations that, because of their oddness, help them to feel like it's not just a quote of church music, but actually this kind of renewed sense of wonder. I mean, he uses one type of progression frequently in this piece. It's called the it's the, the chromatic mediate relation. <laughs> and there are many of them. And for like basically more than a century prior to Hovannes, people had been using chromatic mediate relations for that same exact purpose. Right, to create this kind of sense of otherworldly transformation precisely because it sounds acceptable and understandable, but clearly different from our normal expectations of harmonic progression. Now, all of that having been said, I found myself thinking with this piece about just the choice to use things like fugue, chorale. The very beginning of the piece, there's a drone, which is the most ancient of devices ever, (laughs) right? There are many passages throughout the whole symphony that feature just a single melody, like barely any accompaniment. Mm -hmm. These are really elemental concepts, right? A single melody is the model of the oldest texture in the book, monophony, right? The polyphony is what we have in the fugue. A chorale is the textbook example of homophony. These are all like technical terms for different fundamental textures in music. Mm. And maybe it's just because I teach music theory. I found myself noticing this and thinking, A, wow, these are great examples for teaching. Uh, And B, why use such basic techniques and such basic textures in the service of a piece about something that is still in the realm of like not only the unknown but like literally science fiction Mm. what i mean by this is that when we talk about science fiction and we talk about imagining futures of humanity i can't think of very many examples where the like, let's say the narrative or the literary tools we use are, oh, I know, back to simplicity. It's always, no, we need to invent new technology in order to make this happen, or we need to invent a new form of physics, or, you know, it's never like, well, let me build a rocket out of pine, you know, and use ores to make get myself to Mars. I mean, musically, that's the technology that he's using, this, like, antiquated musical technology that even though he's updated it in a way with his the specifics i find it really interesting to think that this future looking piece is so heavily rooted in like really ancient musical techniques and Mm -hmm. ideas Mm -hmm. this was a hard thing for me to sort of reconcile especially because i want 
to reconcile it because on some level I do hear it and I'm like, oh yeah, of course this is space music. And not just because of the title, Mm -hmm. right? Like something, it still does that somehow. Yeah. Well, I think you're thinking like a scientist. Ah, what do you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's true. Like for science, you do need new technologies. You do need things that no one's ever seen before. I would argue that that's not really how music works. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's always going to be people innovating and coming up with their own voices and their own styles, but like... I don't know, like, they they tried that in the 20th century with serialism. They're like, this is the music of the future. Well, guess what? People didn't really like it. I mean, some people liked it, but, like, it didn't have popular appeal, really. And I think Hovhannes was right in the middle of that, and he was like, this music doesn't speak to me. He really thought, you know, there's something about music that is intrinsically connected to the human being, And he's like, if I am not reacting in some kind of way to this music, if I'm not connecting, if it doesn't do anything to me, then why do it? And I mean, other people have disagreed with him. Obviously, that serial music can be very effective, but in his mind, it just wasn't doing it. And he was like, this is why I want to write tonal music, because I think it appeals to people, and I think that people can easily connect to it. And so... I mean, maybe that's part of the project of trying to evoke awe in space is making music that is accessible to people and that is going to, you know, give them that sense of awe and not be off-putting, you know? Yeah. I don't know. No, I think that's fair, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And maybe I'm thinking too much like a scientist, or maybe I'm also thinking too much like a music theorist in that (laughs) (laughs) it's I just I don't know if a fugue for me like personally is the way to generate awe especially when it's only 45 seconds of fugue right you know (laughs) I mean I guess that's the thing of it it's like I I like I do I think that makes perfect sense right I mean if you're trying to find a language that's going to resonate with an audience and generate a sense of awe it does make sense to rely on methods you know work and that you feel in your soul are correct i mean i hey i love me a chromatic median it doesn't take a lot for me to hear one of those and be like ooh, i feel a sense of awe and that's like little microscopic moment of this kind of chord progression I'm just thinking about constructing here, I mean, a small one, but constructing a symphony, <laughs> you know, and and using these basic things. I mean, it's, I guess I'm, I'm sort of like stuck on the, I, I perceive a slight sort of disconnect between the idea of appealing to what is knowable as a pathway towards the unknown Hmm. i don't know that's only a half-formed thought i think but and it's like there's nothing like i don't think the music is ineffective i want to be clear about that like i do think that it's successful i think i'm just sort of i'm trying to understand how it's successful in a way that goes beyond like it's successful because it's successful Hmm. you know um (laughs) (laughs) i think havanas would be like 
that's okay. That's, that's, that's enough. That's enough. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I have, a, I, know. I have a great quote from him if, if I can find it. Maybe I'm just, I'm just trying. It's been a long day. I'm trying too hard. No, it's, no, it's, it's fine. That's what we do. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> okay. He's talking about his whole, like, you know, calling in life. And then he says, It is not my purpose to supply a few pseudo-intellectual musicians and critics with more food for brilliant argumentation, <laughs> but rather to inspire all mankind with new heroism and spiritual nobility. Well, there you go. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Our exercise is... Zero percent valid to him. Okay, no, no, that's not true. I, you know, there is something like you know, you said messianic before, and I don't know. I there's <laughs> maybe I'm just grumpy today, but there is something very grandiose about that statement. What mu- he's in a music that can communicate to all mankind <laughs> by way of fugues for concert band. I mean, I don't know, man. I don't have the answer to what music would communicate to all mankind. Maybe it is Hovhannes and we just haven't gotten there yet. Maybe. Maybe. I did want to add that there is one aspect of the work that I think 100% is successful in terms of this idea of awe and wonder. It's also an aspect that is particularly well suited to the wind ensemble, and that's his use of timbre, right? All of the different colors of these instruments get blended in so many different ways. It's a profoundly colorful piece. And actually the use of these kind of solo lines in different instruments, even though that's a really basic approach, it's still pretty awesome when at one moment you can have a melody and a solo trumpet and then a solo clarinet and then like a trombone section solo and then a saxophone solo and you know, and then of course these vibraphones doing what vibraphones do best with their <laughs> and, <laughs> and the chimes and the chimes, right? Like there's so many. You become so aware of the diversity of colors and their various combinations, which he's really good at using. Um, and I think that's one aspect in which the piece unambiguously succeeds. It's hard for me to imagine hearing this piece and not being at least a little bit amazed by this range of colors. Yeah. I mean, this piece does have some really grand moments for sure. Yeah. But you're right. Like, not all of it is that. And I think that that's fine. Like, the part in the the first movement where you have this vibraphone doing mm. these like dee 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 it actually reminds me a little bit of the pattern of our theme song uh-huh. um, yeah. <laughs> this is expressing a different kind of mood and yeah, that mood yeah. is like playfulness
I mean, when that part came on, I was a little bit taken aback because before it was all so serious, and then it was suddenly like dee 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 dee, and it's like, oh, okay, maybe now that these space travelers are like freed from whatever is going on on Earth, they like feel this sense of lightness to them, like, sure. wow, maybe I could loosen up a little bit, you know. <laughs> um, this actually reminds me so much of the novel out of the silent planet by c.s lewis it's about a guy named ransom he's just a normal dude who gets kidnapped by a couple of venture capitalists who want (laughs) to go and you know mine the resources of mars so they built this space capsule i don't know why they take him but they take him and he gets up in space and he realizes that everything he thought about space is completely wrong He thought it was an empty void, that it was terrible, cold, bleak, full of monsters. And he learns that it's really the opposite. Um, Can I read a passage? Oh, sure. Yay. (laughs) And I think C.S. Lewis has kind of similar impulses to Hovhannes in that he really sees kind of the poetic truths of the pre-Copernican model of space. But he realizes it's not literally true and so that's kind of the purpose of this novel i think so this is they're in space in the little capsule but ransom as time wore on became aware of another and more spiritual cause for his progressive lightening and exultation of heart a nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off him he had read of space At the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter deadness which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him until now. Now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam, he could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean the worlds and all their life had come? He had thought it barren. He now saw that it was the womb of worlds, whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly, even upon the earth with so many eyes. And here, how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens. The heavens which declared the glory, the happy climes that lie where day never shuts his eye up in the broad fields of the sky. That's nice. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know, that that lightness and that, that playfulness and that, you know, awe, the mood is very similar to me, at least from what it seems like Hovhannes was going for. And the liner notes of the CD that we listen to is... It's it it's very good. It's like the best writing I've seen on this piece. There's like no writing on this piece other than this. Um, <laughs> but they actually quote the conductor uh, Keith Bryan, who is a big champion of Hovhannes. He's recorded a ton of his music, but he has this like little program that he wrote out that apparently was approved of by the composer. So take that as you will. But He talks about weightlessness a lot in here, especially in the second movement when they have landed on Mars and they're like exploring and they have this weightlessness. That's actually 
scientifically true because Mars is what like thirty eight percent of the gravity of Earth. Yeah, it's I, I don't know the number off the top. I think of my it's head, I think it's that, but it's like the gravity on Mars is much lower. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know if if you went there. It would be a very interesting experience. That passage also makes me think of what actual space explorers have said when they've experienced space. And Mm -hmm. maybe the most, I don't know if it's the best one, but the most direct one that comes to my mind is when Buzz Aldrin set foot on the moon and referred to it as a magnificent desolation. Mm. And, you know, so he differs in perspective by invoking the idea of desolation and the moon okay maybe kind of desolate but it's a magnificent desolation yeah yeah oh, buzz aldrin also wants people to colonize mars yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hmm. this reminds me of the way that hovanus's view is kind of similar to dante's in that he's evoking space as being this like infinite place that meaning resides there somehow Dante's version is the divine, obviously, who resides actually in Empyrean, which is outside of physical space. But regardless, there's one way I think that Hovannis and Dante differ. And that is, in Dante's cosmology, the Earth is the pits of the universe. (laughs) It's literally the worst place. He goes, once he reaches the fixed stars, he turns around and he looks back and he looks at Earth and he's like wow what a little speck truly people who think that this place is terrible are correct (laughs) um but i think hovanis would take the opposite view he would turn around and he'd look back and and say oh wow look at our beautiful home you know isn't it amazing and shouldn't we try to protect it